Well, it's been mentioned several times, we're working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And this week we're taking a look at the third chapter of Mark's Gospel. And as I worked my way through that, I felt it was important to read the entire chapter because it's one of those chapters that just kind of goes bang, 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 and everything is sort of related and tied together. So before I get into preaching on the passage, we're going to turn to the third chapter of Mark and read it in its entirety. Let's listen to the word of the Lord in Mark 3. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, the the accusers, Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If the kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end is come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, He has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will 
with my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Lord God, speak to us now. Enlighten our minds. Holy Spirit, help us to listen, to hear, and to obey. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. One summer, I had the privilege of coaching the East Kentwood Boys High School soccer team in the Summer Recreation League. Their school coaches can't coach outside of the school season, and so they find somebody else and they ask if I would do that. One particular day, we were going to be playing one of our chief rivals. And the game was just underway when one of our defenders collided with one of their forwards, and immediately the referee blew the whistle and called a foul on us. Kind of bit my lip and thought, ooh, that's not a good call. I hope this isn't going to be one of those days with the officials. About two minutes later, same thing. Same two players collided. Referee made the same call. I didn't know if if I should be more frustrated with my player for getting in the same position again or with the referee for still making a bad call, so I sort of stepped back from the sidelines and sort of behind the subs or on the sideline, figuring I, I needed to kind of process what to say and try to get a feel for how the referee was calling the game. A couple of minutes later, third time, same thing happened, same call, and in frustration, I just sort of flipped my hat to the ground and said, oh, come on picked my hat up and decided I needed to get to the sideline to figure out something to say to my player without saying anything against the referee. And so I'm standing there trying to figure it all out, and all of a sudden the referee blows his whistle and he comes over to the sideline and he asked me how I think the game is going. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, are you satisfied with the way we're calling the game? A thousand thoughts went through my mind, but I said, well, if you mean, have I thought every call was right? No, but... I haven't said anything, and I don't plan on it. And then he said, that's it. This game is over. It was done. What do you do with an angry referee? The other coach came to me and said, what in the world did you say? And I told him what went on, and he said, you're kidding. I said, no. What do you do with an angry referee? I had some thoughts what I wanted to do, but we won't go there right this morning. Another time after the worship service, I was greeting people in the narthex. And I began to hear this loud, male, harsh voice speaking some very abusive language. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a husband being abusive verbally to his wife, who was seeking to divorce him. He hadn't been at the service, but he knew she would be, and he wanted to confront her, and so there he was in the narthex. We had a large narthex, so... People found it convenient to kind of skirt around and leave them there, and so I knew it was up to me to go and stand between them and try to talk him down. But what do you do with an angry husband? That all went through my mind when I read these words. Mark wrote that Jesus looked around at them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Jesus was angry. So angry that Mark uses three Greek words angry, deeply distressed, and stubborn that appear nowhere else in the gospel. Think about that. Jesus was angry. What do you do with an angry Jesus? As I go through this chapter, I think Mark simply says, you follow him. And when we do, we learn some things. 
first thing we learn in verses 1 to 6 is that following Jesus is confrontational. As Jesus entered the synagogue, he confronted a man with a withered hand. The Greek implies that he wasn't born that way, so that either he had a disease or he had had an accident, and he could no longer work for a living, and he was reduced to begging for a lifestyle. Jesus knew that making him the focal point would bring a confrontation. Because Mark wrote, some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely. Literally, literally it is, so they watched him hanging in suspense to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. It's interesting that those opposing Jesus didn't doubt that he could heal. They wondered if he would because it was the Sabbath. And he had already driven out evil spirits on the Sabbath back in the first chapter. Now the reality is, as Pastor Kevin mentioned in his sermon last week, this is already the fifth time this group has gathered to hear what Jesus has to say to try to find something wrong with him. We can't go into all of them, but if you want the verses in the second chapter, it's verses 6, 15, 18, and 24. Now, all of those occurred, by the way, after he healed the leper back in chapter 1 and told the leper not to tell anybody, but the leper went out and told everybody. So everything was all stirred up. But in those scenes in the second chapter, Jesus would always silence the teachers and Pharisees on issues such as forgiveness, eating with sinners, fasting, and Sabbath rules. He won the debates, but he hadn't won over the opposition. I think to appreciate the tension here, we need to understand the laws had strict limitations on what acts of healing could be done on the Sabbath. For example, a woman in childbirth, well, she could be helped. An infection of the throat could be treated. If a wall fell on someone, you could take away the debris to find out if they were dead or alive. If they were alive, you could help them up. If they were dead, you left the body there till the next day. If you fractured a bone, had to wait till the next day to take care of it. If you sprained something, you couldn't pour cold water on it on the Sabbath. If you cut your finger, you could wrap some gauze around it, but you couldn't put any ointment on it. That's how highly regulated the Sabbath was. In fact, it is said that a strict Jew would not even defend his own life on the Sabbath. Now, since it was the duty of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees to protect the people from false prophets and the nation from insurrectionists, Jesus knew that they were not there that day to worship. In fact, Mark says, they were there that they might accuse him. And he knew that healing this man didn't qualify under their rules. This man would be no worse off if he left him until the next day. But we know Jesus was never intimidated. In fact, on other occasions, he was very blunt. Mark 7, 6. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I say. But this time was different. He told the man, Stand up in front of everyone. And then he turned to those who were there to accuse him. 
And he set them up to judge themselves. It's really beautiful how he does this. He asks two questions. First, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? Now think about it. If he didn't heal the man, he'd be withholding good, and that would be doing evil. (laughs) Of course, the irony is that the authorities want to deny Jesus the right to do it, and they were doing evil already. Second question was, is it lawful to save life or to kill? More irony. Jesus had the power and desire to help save this man's life and livelihood. And yet the authorities were there with one purpose in mind, and that was to kill Jesus. They were already plotting his death, and he knew it. Once again, he won the debate, and they knew it. And they were silent. That's when, in verse 5, he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. In his questions and healing, Jesus wasn't promoting a religion, but rather a lifestyle. He was teaching that following him equates to doing good and saving lives. And that lifestyle is not just about rules and regulations and ceremony and ritual, no matter how good they might be and how helpful they might be. If someone had a need, Jesus met that need. He was simply living out the Scriptures on which He was raised. Hosea 6.6 For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Micah 6.8 He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Later on, here in the Gospel of Mark, we hear Jesus saying, Mark 12, 33, to love Him, to love God with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. The man who was his closest friend and companion, the Apostle John, caught the Spirit 1 John, the third chapter. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. And a little later on, dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions in truth. I wonder if sometimes our rituals, our rules, our structures, our preferences, our ways of doing and thinking about things discourage and stifle us from following Jesus' lifestyle. I wonder, does Jesus sometimes get angry with us? So here's the first of several questions I'll ask you this morning. If you call him Lord, Lord, do you do what he says? Following Jesus is confrontational. Then verses 7 to 12, we find that following Jesus is also challenging. The crowds flock to him. The word for crowding means pressing or crushing 
It's a guest falling forward, mobbing. It's the same word that is used for, for stomping grapes to get out the juice. That's how heavily, Mark says, they were pressing upon him. Mark even lists the towns and the regions from which the crowds came. Many came from a considerable distance. He mentions virtually all of Israel and the surrounding communities. People came at great distance and cost to follow him around. It reminds me of something I heard during the World Cup soccer tournament. One of the announcers said that some of the Argentinians he had spoken to said that they had given up their life savings to make it to the World Cup tournament in the hopes that it would be a life-changing moment. I think it was a similar kind of spirit for many of the people who flocked around Jesus. They hoped for that life-changing moment. They would come at any cost to be with Him. But the problem is the excitement often wears out. I wonder how long it took or will take, for example, for some of those Argentinians to wish they had a little extra money in their savings account. Or they'll ever wonder, was it really worth it? The excitement wears off, even as we follow Jesus through each of the Gospels. The more He is opposed, the thinner the crowd gets, and eventually it's the crowd that turns on Him and calls for His death. Jesus' presence is challenging as it demands a decision. People eventually need to choose if it's worth the price of following Him. So here's another question for you. How passionate are you about being with Jesus? Going where He goes and doing what He does. He may call you to stand before the crowd. He may confront your mindset, your habits, or your heart. He may, he may even ask you to follow Him to death. How passionate are you? Following Jesus is challenging. But we also find that following Jesus is creative. Verses 13 to 19, Jesus calls together a collection of widely diverse people to be his partners in meeting the needs around him. There are so many needs, Jesus can't do it all, and so he, he gathers the, them together. Now, Pastor Kevin talked in week one about how people chose their rabbi and literally followed in his steps, but here, Jesus turns the table and he called to him those he wanted for some specific tasks. The Greek literally says he made twelve. In other words, he wasn't just raising their status, he was making something different than they were before. I can say that because Mark's verb is the same that's used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Mark is saying here, I think, that he is creating something new, someone new. The twelve are a new creation. And that means that discipleship does not consist in what disciples can do for Jesus but in what Jesus can make of disciples and do through them. And Jesus continues to call people into discipleship today to spend time with Him so He can give them a purpose and a power. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.11, So Christ Himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip His people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith 
and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. In the same way, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to us. He's making us be what He wants us to be so we can do what He wants us to do. If you had told me when I was growing up that I would stand every week in front of people and speak and give a sermon, and that I would hold leadership positions even in the life of the church, I would have politely but firmly disagreed. Not that I had anything against it, but that was not me. That was not my interest, my passion, or my skills. But I've been doing it now for a lot of years. Been there. Still doing it. And it's hard to imagine where or who I'd be if I had resisted God's creative spirit. Here's another question for you. Are you more concerned with what you can do for Jesus than in what he can make of and do through you? Following Jesus is creative. But we also find that following Jesus is convicting. In verse 20, we find Jesus in a house with his disciples, presumably to relax and eat. But once again, the crowd was pressing in on them so they couldn't eat, let alone relax. I sort of imagine that maybe you're having dinner in a nice restaurant with, with your family, and there's a long line of people waiting to be seated. But rather than just have them stand in the vestibule of the waiting area, the manager tells them to just go ahead and disperse among the people and have a good time and join in conversation. And suddenly you can't enjoy your meal and relax the way you had intended to. Well, it's somewhat like that, only the house is smaller and the crowd is even greater. And then Mark adds that somehow Jesus' family got wind of what was going on and decided enough was enough, and now it was time to, to take charge of Jesus. But before they could get there, those pesky teachers of the law stirred things up by saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. And then Mark says, so Jesus called them over to him. Just, just time, time out. It makes me wonder, were they speaking so loud that Jesus could just normally hear them, or were they thinking he couldn't hear them, but in his divine hearing he heard them, so he surprised them when he called them over. Nonetheless, he called them over. He was ready to talk to them again. He began to speak to them in parables beautiful parable. Four short sentences. He exposes their illogical reasoning, and he brings home his point, which is this, verse 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Jesus was claiming that he was plundering Satan and freeing people from Satan's control. And then this, this angry Jesus, and I think probably with kind of a Holy stare. Eyeball to eyeball. Takes a look and says, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. In other words, teachers, be careful. The only unforgivable sin is attributing my divine works to Satan. But Mark says, he said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. 
Yet isn't it interesting that back in verse 11 we find out even the evil spirits knew who he was. You are the Son of God, they would say. We could spend a couple of weeks on sin against the Holy Spirit, but let me just say this. It's believing that Jesus is motivated by evil rather than good. That he's empowered by the devil rather than by God. It's a blatant rejection of who Jesus is. He's either God's Son or He's not. And it's an eternal sin since anyone who cannot distinguish good from evil or evil from good, light from darkness or darkness from light, is so far down the path of sin that they're beyond the reach of repentance. The teachers needed to recall the words of their own Scriptures, Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Their conviction of Jesus turned into a conviction of themselves yet again. So here's your next question. Where do you stand with Jesus? Have you claimed that He is Lord? After this pointed exchange, Jesus' earthly family arrives on the scene. And we learn that following Jesus is communal. When he's told that his mother and brothers are outside looking for him, he raises the question, who are my mother and brothers? He's not denying his human family, but he's affirming the family of God. And I see him sort of stretching out his arms of the crowd saying, here are my mother and my brothers. Jesus, and I suspect very tenderly, is alerting his natural family that blood relationship cannot claim privilege The highest of families comes not from a bloodline, but from a spirit line. Those who stay in His presence and do His will are His family. So here's the next question. Are you in Jesus' family of God? To help you decide that, there's two things to note. First of all, if we're in the family, we bear family resemblance. We look like one another. For example, take a look at this picture. There's three guys there. Think they belong in the same family? Do they have a hairline like anybody you know? Their mother. No, it's uh, like me, right? When you're in the family, you bear a resemblance. Now, what's the point? 1 John 2, 6, Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus did. Are you walking as Jesus did? Are you bearing His resemblance? And second, if you love your family, you gladly share about them. You ask about our family, and Barb and I will love to tell you about our boys and our grandkids and our great-grandchild. Well, we could talk all day. It's just something you do. You share. As the Harneys wrote in their book on organic discipleship that was mentioned earlier, the closer we walk with Jesus the more our hearts will break for the lost and the more our lives will orient toward those who are still wandering. Are you sharing Jesus' love? Now let's bring it all together. Here's the challenge. In this third chapter, there are five groups following Jesus. Of which group are you a part? One. Are you part of the crowd crushing Jesus because you want to be amazed at what He can do? Two, are you among the needy 
waiting for extraction of power, ready to stand in front of the crowd and trust Jesus to meet your needs. Three, are you among those who are more concerned with rituals, rules, and tradition than with fully living like Jesus? Four, are you part of the family, glad to be in the fold, trying to be obedient? Fifth group, are you among the disciples who spend time with Jesus, live like Jesus, and go out and share Jesus? The point is, Jesus wants us all in number five. Are you there? It begins with a willingness to stand in the midst, stand up in front of everyone. Through that kind of a stand, you confess your faith in Jesus and in his power to save and to heal. That's where the disciples' following begins. Matthew 10.32, Whoever acknowledges me before man, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before man, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. 1 John 2.23, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. That's where it begins. But it doesn't end there. Christian life and maturity is more than church attendance. It's more than right beliefs. It's more than biblical knowledge and gracious giving. It's more than just being glad to be in the family. Again, in the words of the Harneys, it's about looking more like Jesus, thinking like the Savior, feeling with His heart, and following His ways. When it comes to discipleship, there is no in-between. You are, you're either all in or you're out. There are no part-time disciples. Are you ready to become a true disciple? Are you ready to leave, to have your time become Jesus' time? Are you ready to have your money and resources become Jesus' money and resources? Are you ready to have lost and hurting people become your daily agenda? Before you answer, remember this. Everyone who follows Jesus and becomes a disciple leaves something behind. Luke 9.23, Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's what a man named Azat did, lived in Central Asia, lived among the poor. Company officials where he worked offered Azat a new car, an apartment, and a raise, which would make him among the wealthy. All he had to do was give up Jesus. He refused. So then they changed their tactic and they threatened that they would, he would lose his job. He said, you can have it all. I have just one request. I want to have the opportunity to share Jesus with you. Everyone who follows Jesus and becomes a disciple, leaves something behind. What are you willing to leave? Let's pray. Gracious, loving Lord, help us. Now is the moment of decision, the time to make some choices. We've been challenged by your word and spirit. And as we sing this song, may it be more than just familiar words and tune. May it be our true commitment from the depths of our hearts. 
Holy Spirit, help us as we offer to God our dreams, our plans, our visions, our wills. Shape them as you will. In the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond together.